Why read the Bible? You know, I've been, I've been accused, I think accurately, quite honestly, of uh, being um, nuanced, overly nuanced perhaps, nuancing everything. I like the edges. I like fine-tuning. I like to see all the angles of things. And sometimes nuance isn't all that helpful. This might be a, case, uh, a time when that's the case. Why should you read the Bible? Because your life matters. It started. You're probably relatively aware of that. But unfortunately, there's, there's no dress rehearsal. There's uh, not an exhibition season. There's no games being said, oh yeah, that one didn't count. It all counts, the whole thing. Now that could be terrifying, but it doesn't need to be, but it is reality. Your life has already begun. It's in full force and it is alive. And so the decisions you make and the ways that you act, they all matter. One of the things I said last week, I, I, I talked about Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, and the studies that have been done on how does somebody master something? How do they develop mastery? And one of the things I challenged you was, if we can master something, how about mastering life? Now, let me be clear about what I, I mean by that. that um, it's not that you'll, there can be teaching where you'll get it, and now you'll know how to handle everything perfectly well. It's more like this. There's a, 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 a guy in a church, an artist named Brian Cook, and he was talking about it with some people this week, and one of the things he said is, if you master the pencil, it doesn't mean you've drawn any, every, everything yet. I also wouldn't throw away the eraser. Mastering the pencil means you can begin drawing. The Bible is intended to teach us in the dynamism that life is. In other words, we don't know what's going to happen. Good, bad, and different. Life will happen to us and around us. And what the Bible is, the Bible is, this is really important, the Bible is not a book of theories. I don't have any problem with theories. You know, I'm, I'm a professor at a university. I don't have any problem with theories. It's all about theories. However, the Bible is not a book of theories. In other words, it's not like, hey, try some of this stuff. This will be interesting. Never tested it. Have no idea if it works. It's also not like a religious book with some sayings. What the Bible is, is it's a book that's written in time, in actual moments of history to help people to figure out how to handle their situation because life is dynamic. No two situations are the same. And so what the writers of the Bible are attempting to do, they're attempting to give wisdom to say, okay, in the midst of this dynamic situation, what do you need? In the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows and the indifference of your life, how can you be in the best position possible to understand what the way forward is, what you need to care about, what you need to let go? how you handle when you hold on, when you push forward. Life's dynamic. And the Bible is written in such a way as that it intends to speak into an actual historical situation about how to handle that dynamic moment. For example, 1 John, the book that we're looking at in this series as an example of how the Bible speaks into our life. 1 John is written in a very particular time and place, and it's written to a group of people that were dealing with a teaching that began to sprout up that essentially said, hey, the body's not really real. It's, it's not spiritual. It's, and so you can live any way you want, and it doesn't matter. No harm, no foul. You can do anything you want. And people who were following Jesus, and they were hearing this teaching, and they're like, it was throwing off their parameters of how to live. And so John speaks in that situation specifically. 
He's also trying to show them how to deal with this group that has come together called the church, some people from totally different backgrounds. He's trying to teach them how to live together well. And so the book of 1 John comes out of that specific historical dynamic, but I'm not interested in history for history's sake. I want to read 1 John and see how it speaks to my life because as much as their life matters, mine matters right now. And here's what happened. I've been studying through 1 John, and, and, and my wife Nan and I took some time, and we looked at some of it together. And in the course of looking at the 1 John, what emerged was some themes, some important themes about how to live. And one of those themes, and it's the one we'll look at today, is an example of how the Bible speaks directly into our lives. One of the themes that emerged throughout the book of 1 John is the theme of love. Okay, now I know. Now I say, okay, it's, that, today we're going to talk about love. And you're thinking... Oh my, look at the time. How long can that take? You should love one another. One of the things I love about the Bible, really love about the Bible, is it takes things that I think I know so well, and I've got a perfect handle on, and it flips them. And it shows me angles that I didn't expect. And then it confronts me with my actual life and how do I live these things out. That was the case when I looked at how John teaches love. So, today we're going to do, we're going to look at sections of two or three different chapters in First John because as I was reading it, I started to go, okay, love keeps appearing. So let's see what John is teaching to this group of people about how to love one another. Now, we're going to look at First John chapter 2, verse, and chapter 2, first. And, and as we do so, I want to make this caveat if you don't have a Bible, I don't mean right now. We're going to put things on the screen for you now, but I'm assuming you don't have a screen that's before you most of the time. And so if you don't, you pick up a Bible. We have some in the back. And, you can't, and I said last week, it's sort of self-explanatory. If you don't have a Bible, you can't read it. Unless you have an iPod or a Blackberry or an Android. doesn't matter. You pick. Let's say you want to read the Bible and you'd prefer to do so digitally. So you pick up your iPod slash Android slash BlackBerry, and you go to the App Store, and you type in Bible. And what will, the first one that comes up is version Bible application. It'll look like that. And then when you click on that, it will ask you for a translation. And when the translation comes up, my only advice to you right now is don't pick the one with King in it. hard to read the whole king thing. English Standard Version, uh, New English Translation. If you pick the Amplified Bible, it's not actually louder. It uses more words. Seriously. Like, it'll, it'll give you, like, a series of adjectives to sort of, you know, say, love, by the, which I mean care, you know, show mercy. It's, it's like that. I, I find it slightly irritating. But English Standard Version... New English translation, they're, they're fine. But you, you pick. You can, you can even pick the one with king if you want. If you like speaking in these now, say, go for it. No harm, no foul. Okay, so anyway, you'll, you'll go there. And an additional thing you can do, if you have your iPod slash BlackBerry slash Android right now and you go on version, though you'll see a button there that says live. You click on live, it will search for a live event. And because you are right here, it, this will come out, Warehouse 242 Live. You can also get this by going in your laptop uversion.com and going to, or, or to go to warehouse242.org slash live. And what it'll give you, it'll give you what we're doing on Sunday. 
It'll give you the Bible passages. It'll give you songs. It'll give you lament questions, all sorts of things. It's a wonderful way to engage the resources of a particular series. Okay, so however looking at your Bible, whether you're looking at this or you're looking at a book, or for right now you're looking at a screen, we're now going to look at 1 John chapter 2. And this is what it says. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old commandment is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new commandment. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. Now, one of the things that happened as I read through this, I kept seeing the word command show up throughout 1 John. And what I discovered is it's referring to the old command... As you put it in context with the rest of the book, it becomes very obvious. The old command is love one another. And in fact, it is an old command. It's the oldest, most entrenched command of the Bible. In fact, at one point in his life, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded, Jesus is asked this question, you know, what's, how, do we, how do we sum the whole thing up, you know? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, it's really easy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And a second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets are wrapped up in this. And what, what he did is he said, the entirety of the Old Testament, whole thing, even Leviticus, whole thing is wrapped up in this. Do you want to understand what the command of God is? Love God and love others. But then he says, even though it's an old commandment, there's something new about it. In one of the other Gospels, in John, Jesus refers to that specifically, and he shows a different character to it. When he says this, a new command I give you, love one another. And they were looking at each other going, no, that's an old one. But here's the difference. As I loved you, so you must love one another. As I loved you. Shape and character is given to love by the life of Christ love one another. The most abiding, the most entrenched, the most true of all the commandments. Love God, love others. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to explore, okay, so what does that look like? How do I actually live that out? But this is what I want you to see right up front. As you go through First John, you'll see this over and over again, this call to love one another. Love is the measure of your life. If you want to ask yourself the question, how's it going? Love is the measure of your life. It is what defines, according to God, whether or not you're living well or living not so well. And now the truth is, we tempt to define and measure our lives all sorts of ways. Ways that somebody else has designed, ways that we've designed. And in the end, if love isn't the measure, we're using the wrong ruler. It may look like we've done well, but something is amiss. Now, really, you're in church, so I tell you, love's the most important thing. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. So why? Seriously, why? This is what I love about First John. He'll tell us why. In this verse, in chapter 2, when he, he says, I'm writing a new commandment. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light 
is already shining. Throughout the book of 1 John, it keeps referring to this, that the light, that God is the light and that God is love and that there's a purity to it that cannot be diminished or altered. The reason why love is the measure of our lives is because it's at the very nature of who God is. God can't help but love. It's who he is. There's nobody who can tell him to do it. There's nothing that he needs to prove. He loves simply because he loves. You see, love doesn't really require an explanation or a reason. It simply requires a desire. God loves simply because that's who he is. You see, at some point in history, God will send his son Jesus to earth to die. And it wasn't as if he was having a good day. In other words, for most of the time, he looked down at humanity and he was really just sort of ticked off. And then one day he woke up and he felt better. And he thought, you know what? Maybe they're not so bad. Maybe I'll love these people today. I'll cut them a break. Jesus, let's go down there and rescue them because I'm feeling good today. Don't know how I'll feel tomorrow today. Let's make it happen. It, was, it wasn't a whim. It wasn't a one-time action. Truth is, it was inevitable. There's no way for God to be God and look at you and I and see us separated from him and not experiencing the life we were created for. There's no way for him to look at that and not act because, by definition, he is love. It's who he is. That's how he lives. And so it had to be. Love is at the very core of what the universe is. That's one reason. But there's another. And the other reason is if you stack it all up and you ask this question, what other people need the most? They need somebody who loves them. Really, we'll take the focus off of us and let's think about other people for a moment. What do the people around us need most? They need to know that someone loves them. They need to know that someone loves them when they succeed brilliantly, when life is going rather indifferently, and when they fail majestically. There, there is, you've, you've had this happen, right? Where you succeed, things go really well, and you look around for the person to share it with, and, and they're not there. Somehow it's not the same. There's, there's nothing that's so affirming, that so brings us alive as success, along with somebody who we know would have loved us whether we had failed or succeeded, or somewhere in between. And so they are genuinely happy for us. Not sort of happy, not provisionally happy, not happy but really wish it had happened to them instead. They're actually happy for us. Why? Because they love us. Because their heart is for us. There is nothing that's so energizing in life as succeeding brilliantly and having somebody alongside you who loves you in the midst of that and would have loved you if you failed. Well, then, of course, when we do crash and burn in technicolor flames, to have somebody alongside of us who they might challenge us, they might even rebuke us, but they are for us, and they love us, and they want the best for us. And they care deeply, even 
if we've brought it on ourselves, they care deeply that we're in pain. See, that's what people need. At the end of the day, that's what the people around you need. That's what will make them most alive, is love that speaks to them and reaches them in all moments because life is dynamic. Love that's conditional, love that's provisional, it's not really love. It's not horrible, but it's not really love. Love's the measure of our lives. That's why John speaks of it over and over again. As those who live in the light, who live in the presence of God, this is what will happen. Now, that's all fine, because again, you could still be at the place where you go like, okay, I'm supposed to love, and that's what other people need. So, yeah, I love you. Dave, love you, buddy. But what does love actually look like? Well, it's really interesting. John is is really direct. And in chapter 3, this is what he says. It's It's almost as if he's been writing for two and a half chapters, and he suddenly realizes, you know what? There's somebody out there who's going, yeah, but what do you mean by love? This is what I mean. So he says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. How do we know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And they says, and, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, for our sisters, for those around us. Because now we know what love is. Well, what is love? What does it mean when it says, this is how we know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Well, let me give you the opposite. Let me give you what it wouldn't have looked like. Let's say Jesus genuinely cares about you. He likes you. He's quite fond of you. And he's always intended to love you. Really. And so he said, you know, someday, someday, I'm going to die for these people. I am. I want to. I think the world of them. I'd like to die for them. I'm going to do it. Someday, I'm going to get around to this. And then it never quite happened. He got busy. It was a game on. Time got away from him. He just forgot. It just slipped. And so Jesus comes to us and he says, look, I, I really do love you. I do. I just, I missed it. I'm really sorry. I didn't do it. But I do love you. Okay? Okay, now Jesus is not going to do that, right? However, we might. I, I really, I, I meant to. I, I wanted to. I'm, I'm going to. Someday. Now, if that's you, I'm not saying you're a horrible person. I'm really not. What I'm saying is, that's not actually love. That's marginally good intentions. See, as my wife said to me one day, direct quote, Life requires personal responsibility. Love requires personal responsibility. It actually takes us doing something, taking hold of something. Love that doesn't have personal responsibility, love that doesn't have follow-through might be a nice thought, but it isn't actually love. It's not to say you're horrible, to say it's not actually love. In other words, love always creates benefit for the other person in some fashion. 
And to the extent that we live our lives in such a way with our best intentions that don't actually get lived out, then what happens is we often put other people such that they experience some loss because of our lack of action. And so they may be showing us love because they may be forgiving us and extending us grace and forgiving us, and that's, that's great. But in those cases, we've not actually loved them because love has a follow-through to it. Love actually does the thing. It comes alongside. It speaks words. It creates actions. It takes into account the need of somebody around us and moves into it. Apart from that, it's just good intentions. And so John said, you want to know how, what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for it. Didn't think about it. He did it. And so we actually now we know what love is. And that's the character of the love that God wants us to live out. Not to look around at people and say, hey, think the world of you. Hope life goes well. But to move into their lives. To engage where they are. That their lives would be qualitatively different because of us. I'll tell you what, start measuring your life that way. Start measuring your life by this simple question. Are the people around me's lives qualitatively better because I'm there? Now that seems hard. It does, I admit it. That's what love looks like. The thing I love about where John goes in the end is it's a very full look at love because what he says is, look, love's the measure. You can measure yourself all sorts of other ways that the wrong ruler loves the measure of your life because this is who God is and it's what people actually need. And love looks like this. It's actual action, words, presence. It's personally taking responsibility and moving into someone's life. And we'll talk more about personal responsibility next week because John deals with that a lot. But then John says there is something that allows us to live this way. That love is galvanized by the presence of God in your life. And this is what he says. He's coming to the end of the book and he wants to remind people what the source and the power of being able to love others is. And he says this, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In other words, the source, the product, the the ability to get outside of myself and love comes from the presence of God. In this way, love is made complete among us. So we'll have confidence in the day of judgment. This is important because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. What is the source and the power of being able to love other people? Freedom. We love because he first loved us. We love not because we're afraid of what will happen to us if we don't, not because we fear falling short if we don't, because perfect love casts out fear. If you love somebody 
because you ought to under compulsion, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not even saying it might not help. I'm saying it's not actually love. It's some level of decent effort, but the real power and the force that allows us not to love in snippets, but to begin to love as a way of life, is when we realize this, God loved me first, completely and fully, and now I don't live out of fear anymore. I don't love because I'm afraid of what happens to me if I don't. I love because I'm not afraid anymore. I don't have to prove anything anymore. Fully seen, fully accepted, I can now reach out and love other people. Not to get brownie points, not because I have to, but because I'm free of all compulsion. Love doesn't require a reason. It requires desire. Freedom breeds desire. You see, what if, just imagine, theoretically, what if you took your next few moments and you explored all the issues in your life, the full-color idiosyncrasies, and then you went down another level and you started to explore some of the deeper, darker things. What if those random thoughts that make you feel like you have Tourette's internally were suddenly revealed? What if the darker moments appeared? What if your motives, the mixture of them, suddenly was known? What if there was somebody who knew that completely and loved you anyway? Wouldn't that be awesome? And there it is. We love because he first loved us. We love because he saw us completely and loved us. We love because the God of the universe saw your deepest, darkest secrets and loved you. Not because he had to, because he wanted to. Was now I'm free. My identity is set. I'm the beloved of God. And now as I wade into your life, I don't have to do so wondering whether if I don't do it well enough, somehow I'm, I fail to prove my worth. Now with a clean slate, I can come alongside you and care for you because I've been loved without limit. This is how we love. This is why we read the Bible. Because the Bible gives color and shape and depth to things that we might have thought were simple. Love one another. Uh, understand that is the nature of the universe and it's what you were called into. Understand that's what people need most. Understand that it's always played out with responsibility and with engagement. And understand that if you try to do this out of compulsion and duty, you will always fail. But you are loved fully and completely. And that gives you the power to move forward into the world. Here's what happens for many of us when we read the Bible. We know we're supposed to love one another. But then we're reading through 1 John and we realize that how often we measure our lives by things that are not true. 
and it becomes crystal clear again that love is the measure of my life. And so it reorients my conversations, my arguments, and my actions. I invite you in. I invite you to take a dive forward into a book that was written in actual space and time in order to practically engage your life because your life matters to God and it matters to you. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us forward such that we can see the depth of how you speak into our lives which are dynamic and unpredictable and yet you form this solid ground of a love that won't get shaken or lost and can give us a power and a freedom to move into the world and to actually love people responsibly and well. I thank you that we stand here on this side of the writing of the Bible so that you have given us the opportunity to see truth for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today as we have communion, it is that tangible picture of the phrase, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ died for us. And so, taking the action firmly by the horns, as he was about to be betrayed, just before he would choose to go to a cross and die, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. It will be broken so that you in receiving it can be made whole again.